Hello friends, as promised, here's part two of the special double episode of The Dunces Corner we've affectionately dubbed The Dunces Do Netflix. In part one, we bantered a bit about how Catholics can approach media in a discerning way, and in this concluding half, we try to put those thoughts into action with one of our favorite shows that you've probably heard us mention before, The Good Place. Stick around to the end to hear Dr. Minert and Trey compete in a game of Guess the Plot. Prayers for you all, and we hope you enjoy it. Hey, well, um, speaking of shows that uh, might have something to say about our current culture, I thought that since we're all the Good Place fans... Uh, here that maybe we would take a little crack at uh, analyzing or diagnosing the good place together. So I don't know has has everyone made it to the last episodes? Because this is going to be spoiler filled. Brady, you're okay with that? I can't hear you. Off, uh, but he's that's fine. Things. I'll I'll, yeah. I'll never. I'll I'll probably <laughs> never really finish it all the way through continuously. I'll probably watch spurts of the whole thing. I watched like 15 minutes of the second to last episode before we got on. So I could be with you for like 15 minutes and then okay. we're out. You know? <laughs> yeah, nice. And then Elise, have you made it to the end? How'd you know? Um, <laughs> well, a uh, spoiler, I'm actually not the biggest good fl- place fan. So okay. I don't know how I made it onto this podcast. Got it. you got a um, long ways to go. And well, yeah. I did watch the last two episodes. Just okay. For this podcast, but I, nice. I'm I'm missing some things in between. Yeah, but I know the characters, and I know the premise. Also, in philosophy, we talk a lot about the premise. So okay, well, okay good. Let, let's um, let's do uh, the Dunces Corner Awards for the Good Place. This is the way that I want to approach this. So, um, for people who are listening who maybe don't have an idea about the show. Let's see. They they ran four seasons, right? And the fourth season was the indeed final season. They purposely ended the show. And the starting premise is that there are people who wake up and surprise, they died and they are in the good place, supposedly, right? And that's how it all starts off. And I was listening a bit to a podcast where the creator of the show, Michael Schur, I don't know if that's how he pronounces the last name, but he was talking about a bit of the uh, the inspiration behind um, him coming up with this show. And after you've got hits like The Office and Parks and Rec, you know, you kind of get a little free reign to do what you like. So I think he was thinking a bit about um, the afterlife. And he thought of it first in the beginning as just sort of like, a, almost like gaming, you know, like, get enough points and zoop, you, you go up and don't have enough points and you know, you go down that sort of a thing. And he started reading a lot of religious literature on the afterlife. So he said he spent months like doing it. And then after a while was like, wow, this is like really complex. And I don't think that I ultimately want this to be about religion. I want it to be about ethics. So then he took like some sort of ethics class and then started reading philosophy ethics books, that sort of a thing. And that's how it sort of got the um, the form that it's in. So the main character, uh, Eleanor Shellstrop, which is a great name, <laughs> is uh, she, how would you all say what happens in the first season? It's like they, they set it up like she's in the good place and she doesn't belong. And she thinks that everybody else is supposed to be there. Yeah, they set it up as if it was an accident. Like, there's a glitch, and she was supposed to go to the bad place, but she's actually in the good place. Mm-hmm. And there's a dilemma. Does she say anything, or does she just stay there? Yeah, and there seem to be four main characters. There's Eleanor, and then her um, supposed soulmate in the beginning, Chidi, who is a an ethics professor who takes it upon himself to try and teach her how to be good so that she can belong in the good place. And then there's Tahani and there's Jason. Tahani is like this British, uh, super tall, beautiful, very vain person, right? And then Jason is supposed to be a um, a Tibetan monk, <laughs> but he's really, he ends up being like, just this guy from Florida who likes to play Madden and break things. And he doesn't think about anything really at all. 
So it's a really interesting mix of characters. And, and I think the creator actually uh, was using the, um, the play No Exit. Uh, if Dr. Borier was here, he would love it, right? The, the, the Sartre play No Exit, where people are being tortured by their personalities being together. And so this is all sort of the master plan of uh, the demon or who's in charge of designing the so-called good place, which actually isn't the good place, right? These people have actually gone to the bad place and his plan is to uh, get them to torture each other through their own personalities. So that's sort of the backdrop for the show. And just to start things off, so who would you all give the the Atlas Award to? Who do you think's the actor or character who, who you think really carried the weight of the show more than others? I I'm at a tie between Eleanor and Janet. Oh, I know. Do tell. Do tell. I know. So I mean, I think Eleanor is an obvious one. She obviously is, you know, super funny, super witty. Like, um, just like always giving out those one-liners that are just like, oh, but Janet is just the, the ability for, oh, what's her name? I think her name's Darcy, the actress Mm -hmm. to not only portray herself as Janet, but also all the other Janets and then be able to play a Janet and then also a Janet posing as another Janet, like, it's insane. Yeah, I yeah, just yeah. Think You're impressed by the acting chops. There. I'm, I'm really impressed by the acting. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, Janet is the character who, without Janet, they wouldn't have been able to figure out again and again and again, or at least the first time that they were in the bad place again. But I think yeah. she's just a really integral part, you know? Yeah, and Janet is like... I don't know. She's like the Google of the good place. She like knows everything. She's like a moving kiosk, basically, you know, you're an iPhone user, Siri. Okay, fine. Yeah. So they can ask her anything and she knows the answer. And if they want something just like bling, all of a sudden it shows up. She's got it. I may get kicked off the podcast and um, get yourself kicked off. I might be get excommunicated. Um, but I don't really like Kristen Bell as an actress. Um, and that's, that's one reason that I think it's been, it was really hard for me to watch this show. And that's why I haven't. Um, well, and I haven't been watching too many shows, actually. Um, Does her personality rub you the wrong way or what is it? Yeah, yeah, it's hard. Um, I think in general, the show is very cheery. And that's kind of hard for me in a way. But Kristen Bell's very cheery also and um i think it's it's a strength of hers but it just rubs me the wrong way and uh it's hard to describe if it doesn't bother you um Mm. but it bothers me and for all you fans out there i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) i I know have you you, have you watched other Kristen bell things like veronica mars or um, or well, no. I, th- okay. I I think I don't because they bother me. And I know okay. that all everyone wishes they could mute my Zoom right now, but they can't. <laughs> um, Wait, have you seen Frozen? Do you like Frozen? I think that those songs bother me because it's Kristen Bell's <gasps> voice. Wait, oh she sings gosh. in Frozen? She's Anna, Trey. <laughs> yes. One. Yeah, because also it's... I told you that. Yeah, I told you that. Careful. I didn't know that. Elise finds Olaf sketchy i told y'all i'm rigid i told y'all that in my Uh, no but i i really think that the character of anna bothers me because she is so cheery i think elsa i connect with her anyway ice queen wow um so okay back to the atlas award now that you guys know more about me than maybe i'd like um back to the atlas award um I don't know too much about the show, but I think from what I've seen, uh, Chidi, I think carries the weight because he is trying to convince Eleanor to come to like the ethically, morally good sides of things. And Mm -hmm. I think the others too. And he's impressive as an actor. Like he makes me laugh um, because he's like spewing out the philosophy lines in funny ways too. But I also think I'm impressed by how much he loves Eleanor that at the end he was willing to like stay a little more, even though that went against what he knew was right. Cause he wanted to, in a way it was like 
in my religious sense. He wanted to save her soul too. Like, no, I want to show you what the true good is. But I also, I can't sacrifice what is true and what is good. Like I have to go, but I want to show you like that. I think you need to go too, because the good is waiting. So. Mm. Do you think there's a little bit of Chidi in Dr. Boria? (laughs) He kind of reminded me of him. Yeah. So funny. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I think it's hard to say whether there was a sort of star character. Cause like, if you take any one of them out, the whole thing falls apart. You know, it was like if, if yeah, but if, you, for the award, you got to pick somebody, Trey. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, You're but I would mix. definitely take Kristen Bell out. I mean, <laughs> I will what? say I'm she's gonna... she's cast really well because yeah, I think she's I really it, it, she's really good at being the jerk that's ende- endearing because that's who she's supposed to be, right? Like she's supposed to be just a punk, and yet somehow you still like her. If you ever come across this, I don't dislike you as a person, Kristen Bell. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess I could also argue that Michael made a... Maybe this is the redemption in me, but Michael experienced an extraordinary conversion throughout the entirety of the show to the point of him becoming a human, wanting to live a human life. Um Okay, let's go to that award then, Trey, since you're on that track. Let's go for the Saul Paul Award, wait, the, wait, best re- wait, wait. the best redemptive arc in the show. Wait, it, it feels like Trey is talking about the most improved player instead of the MVP. And we're on discussion of the MVP. And I'd like to give the underdog award to Jason. <laughs> so, the at- <laughs> so, the at- so the Atlas Award goes to Jason? It goes to Jason specifically. Nice. Nice. Uh, one, romance between two people distraught about it huge character development i mean went from the tibetan monk who didn't talk to actually showing his (laughs) true identity and then all of a sudden he's able to understand a little bit of philosophy i mean he's kind of like stumbling through it but he gets it i mean he kind of gets it and not to mention blake bortles best (laughs) player of all time Nice. Brady's giving the Atlas to Jason. Excellent choice, Brady. I like that. Way to stick up for him. The perfect Madden game, too, you know? I mean, I mean 207 <laughs> points. I forgot the <laughs> score, but... <laughs> yeah, the perfect Madden game is in there. <laughs> Excellent. So, Trey, the Saul Paul Award goes to the best redemptive arc in the show. Who are you going to give it to? You giving it to Michael? I, I think so. They all have their redemptive arcs. You know, Tahani overcomes, like, the thing with her parents and her sister... Cheaty learns how to make a decision. Um, you know, they all have their redeem, like the redemption that they, the reason they did not get into the good place, they all overcome that at some point. But Michael is like a little, he's like the wrench thrown in there because he was neither a human at all. Um, and so like he had to start even from less of an area to even understand what it meant to be human to to even like what is I, I don't know like i feel like he had to start from so much farther back to make it to the point that he did to being okay with being human to wanting to experience that to having empathy to like stand up for what he knew was right even though he knew he would be like exiled and he would be like probably you know i i forgot what they kept saying but like melted down and thrown off to like a planet to explode and some sort of i forgot how he phrased his death would be but like he really seemed to be the type of character who made sacrifices constantly at his own demise constantly along the way because he really 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 came to love the group and he came to love who they were Mm -hmm. so i give the award to michael nice yeah, I'm. I'm gonna give it to Chidi since you mentioned Chidi briefly there. I, I I like Chidi. I think he's my favorite character in the show. I mean, there's something I appreciate about the uh, unending wrestling with ethical issues in his head. Yeah, like, I appreciate that. Like they made a running joke of him, like even hitting on drinking almond milk, right? Because of whatever social implications are you know loaded into that sort of a thing, and. Uh, I like that at the end, he is so calm and collected, right? And especially, I, I think the the choice that he makes for Eleanor, 
like having being committed to her seems to have opened up like this freedom inside of him. So he's, he he seems like a totally changed man. So yeah, I I'm going to give the nod there. Anybody else want to chime in on the Saul Paul award? I gave it to Jason because <laughs> I think for a lot of the reasons that Brady was talking about, like I just think it was really funny how he starts out as a monk, can't talk, is miserable. He ends up being able to talk, you know, he he develops this like ethical thing. But then at the very end of the at, of the last episode, he ends up being a monk because he stays in that forest to wait for Janet to give her that necklace again. Mm, that's and true. He, she was like, what have you been doing? And he was just like, oh, you know, I was just kind of like chilling. It was really easy. I was just like thinking about life and stuff and thinking about you. She was like, oh, so you were like a monk, basically. And he was just like, oh, I guess. Like, I just thought it was, when it was really funny on the writer's part to have him end up being a monk in the end, but also just, I don't know. I, I like... I like my boy Jason. He's just a cool guy. <laughs> He's, I, I do like him too. I, I think my least favorite character was Tahani. And Jason really helped me in the scenes since he was often involved with her. Like he just added the comedic element that just kind of mm-hmm. softened my uh, distaste for Tahani. Okay, let's change it up. Let's go to, uh, let's go to the heavy one here. We, this is the dunce's corner. So, Let's go. Give me your best philosophical or theological thought that the show provoked in you. Okay. Well, um, in episode 12, uh, surprisingly, Michael, because I didn't really like him as a character either, um, said that, and I, I just haven't watched enough, but I guess because he just seemed to be, in what I saw, kind of like ruling the good place you guys might have to help me without really, mm-hmm. I guess, I don't know, just in kind of like an abstract way in a way to put it and um, kind of without a full heart there. Like everyone else was kind of guiding him when he was like, hey, yeah, let's put the doors there. Like, that sounds great. Let's make them happy. It just, I don't know. There was kind of a lo- loss of connection, but I think they were all confused. Um, yeah, it, it's partly, so th- what's going on in that episode that's so interesting. I actually like that episode better than the finale. Um, so they, they finally get to the good place, like after spending all this time in the bad place. And Michael was the demon who was responsible for creating the bad place that, by, but tricking them by thinking that they were actually in the good place. But throughout the seasons, I'm going to skip over a lot. <laughs> they, they all have their redemptive arc, including Michael. And so they all are allowed to go to the good place. And then the people who are running the good place, when they see Michael, they're like, oh, good. Hey, we're going to swear you in uh, so that you can be a part of the team that runs this. And then he signs it and they're like, peace, because they want to have nothing to do with it because they're struggling with how the good place is actually going. And so the good place... Um, the actual good place isn't all that great, to be honest, right? So I, I think they're they're struggling with that, which is you're seeing Michael struggle with it as well. He's not sure like what to do and how to improve upon it. Okay, yeah, then this makes more sen- sense because he said, "You said that every human is a little bit sad all the time because you know you're going to die, but that knowledge is what gives life meaning." So. Yeah. When he said that, I think I've just been reflecting during this time of quarantine on people are dying and um, it's, a, it's a crazy time of suffering all around us. And um, I think this brings into light a lot of existential questions and uh, existential thought. And I actually was, I took up a little blogging recently and just wrote on um what does it really mean that there are people dying around us and uh, how can we look at this in a spiritual lens? Um, and I mean, the, I don't want to discount at all the suffering that this is, this is real and this is hard. However, I think that death praying and thinking about death can also be in the light of heaven can be a beautiful thing. Um, and I think there are people who are on the bed with ventilators who are trying to pray rosaries, who are offering and sacrificing for us. And there are people who are 
going throughout their daily lives, isolating, quarantining, who are offering up those moments too. Um, everyone who is going about their daily life or suffering or on their last moments before death. I think there's some really beautiful things right now that this um, coronavirus is offering us in thinking about death, whether they're on the moments right before death or whether we're just living our daily lives at home. The thought of death is really bringing about, okay, what's ha- where, where are we going to go when we die? And, are we going to see the face of God? Mm. Dr. Minor, are you going to say something? You look like it. Yeah. I, I was just going to answer your question. I kind of have really mixed thoughts about the finale of the good place. I think on the one hand, it's like a really powerful critique of a lot of elements of our culture that simply claim that if you get what you want, you're going to be fulfilled. Right. And that we even know what we want, truly want, um, I think that's a really powerful critique to show in a way it it visualizes in a really powerful way that finite goods are not going to fulfill us, even if you had them for eternity. So I think that's really cool. But on the other hand, I think the way they frame it is ultimately nihilistic, that there is no master narrative or meaning behind it, except like what you give to it. And the only escape is annihilation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then there's a real like dualism behind it too, that somehow good requires evil to be good, which I also disagree with. So, I mean, I was, it's ambiguous for me. I I really, the sense that finite goods, even for eternity and like getting what you want on like a surface level are going to fulfill you. I think that's a real powerful critique and something we all need to hear. Um, That getting what we want in like a proximate or, immediate sense is not going to fulfill us but there's no there's no there's no redemptive arc there i mean in some sense if you want to spin it positively you can say like it does leave the after a mystery right so there's some sense of mystery there of going beyond all of this so maybe it leaves space open for some kind of master narrative or you know where there is ultimate fulfillment um but I don't think that's the way they want to frame it, right? They talk about, and you're, you're, it'll just be over, right? So that some sense of like suicide or annihilation is the only way out of the burden of freedom. I think you can find the existentialist stuff like all over it. Right. And, and that ultimately, I mean, as Catholics, we're, we don't think that's, that can't be true. Like there's the deeper good there that's infinite goodness. And so there is that kind of master narrative that ultimate hope that we can be perfectly fulfilled simply because we don't these finite goods are are simply finite reflections of uh he who is goodness itself um so i like the critique but the ultimate like framing of it for me was just it's it seems like it's nihilism yeah i wonder how much of that critique is actually meant to be a critique that's and what I, I wonder too yeah and i i don't really know i right. i do i do think the creators wanted to run with the idea that there's no meaning unless there's a death right to be thought of right so right. and I, I guess you know, I like what Elise is saying in terms of this life right like there is a memento mori you know streak in catholicism that is really helpful for thinking about your death but yeah in the afterlife like i it just seemed like i can i couldn't tell if it was a critique or if it was this is just the best that we could think of, you know, like everybody wants heaven to be good stuff. And so here's all the good stuff. You know, it was almost like, Ooh, I, I thought of the CS Lewis quote about how yeah. uh, heaven's going to be an acquired taste. Right. Like, right. We're, like it's, it just seemed to show that, but I don't know if they actually, <laughs> you know, if, if they were purposely trying to critique that or right. not. Yeah. I was wondering if there was just a sense like this is, this is the way and the, the context in which you make for your own self meaning and you give your own life meaning. And then ultimately the only escape from this burden of freedom is annihilation. So they, I'm not sure if they meant to critique it, but I thought it was, it could be used that way. Right. right? Because they do ultimately show that this good place is not fulfilling. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of shakes made from stardust though. You know, I drink some of those though. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, I 
I'm a real softy whenever it comes to very emotional moments. Um, I'm going to combine a couple of these. My favorite moment is one of my favorite moments besides the Jeremy Baramy whenever Chidi almost loses his mind. Yes. Michael, Nihilistic Mike, Chidi is awesome. <laughs> with, with Michael describing what Jeremy Baramy is, that's one of my favorite moments in the whole show, just watching it break Chidi and everything he knows. Um, but besides that, the 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 scene with in the last episode whenever um Chidi and Eleanor are sitting and they're overlooking the lake and they're just they they're having that kind of last conversation. I was never good at being sad. Partly because my mom straight up told me not to be. But this is sad, man. You got a John Locke quote or a piece of Kantian wisdom you can throw at me? Those guys were more focused on rules and regulations. For spiritual stuff, you gotta turn to the East. I'll take anything you got. Hit me. Because she knows that Chidi's about to be annihilated. He's about to go. Um, and... The, the, the phrase that Eleanor says at the end, uh, just do me one favor, um, tell me goodbye now and leave before I wake up. I think within that, within the context of how, how of everything they've gone through, of all the ups and downs, the twists and the turns, the sacrifices that, that they've had to make, I think for Eleanor to say that actually tells a lot about where she is at that moment. Because... I think at that point she truly, truly loves Chidi with all like truly loves him. But in the sense of that, she recognizes that and in her perspective, Chidi going through that gate is his greatest good in that situation. And so I saw that as she's willing to sacrifice him being there so that he could pursue his greatest good, which is ultimately I, as I come to know the the definition of love that to will the good of the other, the greatest good of the other. So that, that's just one of those moments where I, I emotionally was very, very powerful, but also to go deeper than that, to look at like, wow, she, she was in the place to say that she didn't say, well, before she was like, Oh no, don't go like still say, but over that period, she recognized, wait, that's his good to go. And I love him so much that I will allow him to go to that greatest good, even if that causes me anguish or sadness. Um, So yeah, that was a, and to kind of go off of that, what Elise said after he goes to the gate, one of the things that Janet says is true joy is in the mystery. And I I just love that because I think I'm not a philosopher. I'm not going to be studying philosophy or theology the rest of my life. I will be in my own sense on the side and my own personal pursuit of holiness and, and coming to know Christ. But, you know, it's one of those things where like, I recognize I, and even if I were to be a theologian philosopher, I'm not going to know everything. I will not ever figure it out completely a hundred percent. I I know what the faith teaches. I have hope in it, but truly I'll never really fully understand the mysteries of the faith and I think there's a lot of joy and like freedom in that to be relieved of the, the, the anguish of trying to figure it out. Yeah. They did that scene really well. And I, I, I liked, it was touching that it was like when it was like Chidi's mom kissed Eleanor and left some lipstick and then Eleanor's mom wipes off her cheek. And like, that's the thing that does it for him. There was something really touching about the detail in that moment right there for sure. That was cool. And nihilistic Chidi is when he puts peeps in the chili tray. I don't know if you remember. He goes to the store, he buys tons of cans of chili and all sorts of candy. And then he goes to his philosophy class and he makes this giant pot of chili and he's putting marshmallow peeps in it. And his students are like, what is going on with them? And he just doesn't care about anything. 
You put the peeps in the chili pot and eat them both up. You put the peeps in the chili pot and add the M&Ms. You put the peeps in the chili pot and it makes it taste bad. <clears throat> I'm gonna eat all this chili and or die trying. Anyone want any? I'm just gonna put it right down here. Come on, dip your paws in my chili. Scoop your little mittens right in the stew. Professor? I can see that you're going through something, but exams are next week, so can you teach us anything? Yes. That was my favorite part. And he you... rips his shirt off and yeah. like starts... Okay, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> you put the peeps in the chili and it makes it taste bad. <laughs> yeah. That's your favorite scene, Catherine? That and every time they try to kill Janet and she's like, no, no, Michael, Michael, I'm having your baby. Look at him. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Gosh, no, but I mean, I think my, my favorite like philosophical theological thought that comes from the good place is it was actually in season three, I think when they realized that there's, they're like, there's no way that we can actually get to the good place because of this whole, like the globalization of the world and because of everything has like adverse consequences and all that kind of stuff that made me realize, right. Partly that like, yeah, there, there are a lot of ethical things that we do need to think about, but more importantly, and this is something that's shown throughout the show, but we can't become better people by ourselves we need to have other people showing us the good, but also pushing us forward. And, you know, yeah, just like kind of refining us in a sense, right? The the good place didn't necessarily, because it wasn't religious, it didn't necessarily push this idea of like, you know, um, you need you need Jesus to help you get better, right? There wasn't that element of it, but there was still this communal element of, Every time they rebooted um, the the good, bad place, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever you want to call it from season one. Every time they rebooted that, those four people would always come together and would always make themselves better, right? And would always become better from their interactions with one another. Um, and so I think that just really stuck out to me how there was always this communal element to becoming a better version of yourself or just becoming better just in general, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think there was strong kind of as much as it's like framed ultimately in the last episodes as a kind of existentialism. I think there's a lot of Aristotelianism throughout in the character development and also the dependence on friendship for virtue growth. Yeah. I found that striking as well and totally true. Yeah, I think virtue ethics is the unsung hero of the show. Yeah, I, absolutely. I actually, I actually thought in the end they they wanted to paint out like um some sort of Kantianism as the winner. You know, like like in in the end when you finish this the whole show, what would you say those characters would say? What it means to be good? It's sort of like it's it's either what you said before about you create your own meaning, but I tended to think it was you do the thing that most people would say is good and that no one would disagree with you about being good. Like that's mm -hmm. what's going to count as good or something. That's even though the real, Eleanor says, yeah. Even, even though the real meat of the show seems to be virtue ethics. Yeah. That's what I thought. It's, it's in the background the entire time, even when Chidi's clearly a Kantian, right. For most of the show. Yeah. The whole arc of it is Aristotelian, right? It's about character development and friendship. So, yeah, Brady, I see you wanting to chime in. No, I, I agree with, with Catherine on it. I thought, I mean, it's beautiful that they start with no exit, that we are each other's hell, in essence. Other people are hell. <laughs> but they, they, um, they instead go with more of like the ecclesiology, like an ecclesial approach to like how they view life at the end. It's like, it takes the other person to become a better version of yourself, to actually become your true self. Um, like their true identities and who they were meant to be based upon like the vices that held them back from being themselves were revealed only by means of participating in the good of the other person, which can only be done if you embrace the fact that other people cannot be your hell. They can make you feel like it sometimes, maybe especially how we feel in quarantine sometimes, but 
It doesn't actually mean <laughs> that they are your hell. It just means that they're your means to a salvation that God uses. Obviously, they don't use a a lens of some higher being, but if you get past all like the nihilism and like the your your release is some sort of like death that is permanent. Yeah, th- there's some real beauty in the fact that like they recognize the communal nature of the human person and like the need for even those who are different than us. The people that are so hard to love that because they're different than us. Um, I don't know. To me, that was striking at the end. The people that were so different, the ones that were supposed to be each other's hell designed specifically for that are the people that they're so intimately attached to. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool for sure. Let's let's just say it in simple terms, what we're all really thinking. In the spiritual moral sense, you need Victor and his beauty team and the other girls at the pageant to really bring out the beauty, the good in you. I'm I mean, sorry, where what? Huh? That's a miscongeniality <laughs> reference. <laughs> that, we're going back to Sandra Bullock. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what we're all saying here. This meta analysis <laughs> is still going on. That is my particular <laughs> movie about isn't that it the brings movie out the good in you. The football player from all this. The blind side. She was the blind also side. Do not do not try to bring all Sandra Bullock's and movies and mesh them together. It's so offensive. My critique, and I think Elisa's critique would be too of the good place, is that Sandra Bullock isn't playing Eleanor Shellstrom. That's absolutely <laughs> number one mm-hmm. biggest critique. Mm-hmm. Thank you for just yeah. saying You're welcome. It. Yeah. Nice. Thought I'd bring it in the open. So isn't this the movie where Sandra Bullock proposes to a guy in order to seek citizenship. We're not going to talk about this anymore. <laughs> We're on the good place. Okay. We're on the good place. I, yeah, I was surprised going back to the kind of like what's the master ethical arc that in the entire beginning, Chidi's trying to teach them to have the right kind of motivation is what the real point is. And it's like very Kantian that it turns out to be a utilitarian universe, right? That you're responsible for the effects to the nth degree across the entire world. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was really surprised by that. I was like, okay, I thought they were going to go a Kantian way of like weighing your, your actions, but they actually turns out to be utilitarian and therefore unattainable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought that was a funny way to do it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I was thinking that, um, you know, going back to Barbara Nicolosi and what she's saying in that video, and she wants us to sort of diagnose the culture, this does say something just about the way that our culture thinks about ethics, right? Like, I think oh, what, Mac- what McIntyre says is true. Like, yeah. ethics has exploded. There's only fragments, right? And people people care about ethical things to some degree, but we have no idea what we're saying when we're saying that we want to be good people. And right. we don't want to be bad people, right? And, and that just comes across loud and clear throughout the whole show. Right. And the treating of ethics like a game. I see yeah. this in students, right? It's like, I just, I just need to find the ethical system that fits the problem in front of me and gives me the answer I want, and then I'm good. And I'll just like move on. Right. right? Like, like I'll, 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 trade, I'll trade ethical systems depending on the situation. That's mm-hmm. it. I mean, in some sense, that is nihilism, right? That the ethical systems are just like masks for sub-rational desires you're trying to achieve. But, yeah. That's that reminded, I, I think I remember you saying that, actually, like in the first day of Christian ethics and healthcare, whenever we were talking about ethical systems, you're like, guys, ethical systems are like religion. If you go off into another ethical system, you're basically apostatizing and like you can't do that. Like you have to pick one and stick with it. I think I think I remember you saying. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a point I made all the time. That part of what ethical maturity means is that I'm committed to something, even when it turns out a way that I don't want. Right, and it's super immature to be like, okay, today I'll be a utilitarian because it works out for my, you know, the way I feel, and then tomorrow I'm a Kantian because. You know, it gets me some bonus points with some people. And then the next day I'm an Aristotelian because I want friends, you know, and it's just like all over the place. It's like, it amounts to like a conversion. I mean, but it ultimately shows as you weren't committed to any of them. What you were committed to was getting whatever you felt like. I mean, that's your like master ethical system. 
and and the rest of these are just like bubbled up rational justifications for whatever was already there. It, it takes some real maturity to reflect on it and then to realize I can't just, it is like a conversion. It's like, I see the whole world differently. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I mean, so like, what do you do about it? Right? Like, <laughs> how do you help people <laughs> be genuinely ethical? You know, like <laughs> when this is the sort of world that we're swimming in. I think something that, and maybe I heard this from, I feel like this is something that I heard Michael Shore say about this show is that he, he made it with the, with the intention of that. He just wanted people to be just try a little more, right? Like try to be better. Um, And so, I mean, I think this show really does, it makes you take a step back and think about, okay, what are all the things that I'm doing? Is it ethical? Like this is, you know, my actions do have repercussions. Um, even if it's not like thought of in the afterlife kind of way, there are still repercussions of my actions on earth. How do I deal with that and cope with that? Um, and so, I mean, the thing that I get from this show ethically is that you should just try, just try to be better. Right. I don't know if it necessarily gives you a, a good avenue for that. Um, or any, cause it shows you a bunch of different ethical systems. Um, Elise won't like this, but I mean, in frozen two, there's that song, do the next right thing. And so I think that is also ap- applicable in this. Uh, it's also sung by Kristen Bell. So. <laughs> Yikes. But yeah, I mean, I think, doing the next right thing, doing, doing the, uh, something good. Right. And it, it just trying to be a little better is, is what I think the show is ultimately getting at and just getting people to look at their lives ethically. Hopefully that hit the mark. I don't know. I might've. Yeah. No, I think that's that. fair. At least, you know, it's fair to say there's some, there's worth in even just thinking about it. Right. Right. And the show's great for thinking about it. You know, like the, the point that you brought up, Catherine, you know, with the church, talks about in terms of social sin and structures of sin, like, oh, okay, these choices have all sorts of things that are already wrapped up in them. I mean, that's that's worth thinking about. And in any decision that we're making, it's worth thinking about the morality of it. But I guess I'm I'm still left with the okay, I want to do the next right thing. So does that mean I should do the thing that um most people would say is good. It should be, I should look at the consequences and that's how I'm going to weigh what the next right thing is, or it's going to be whatever meaning I give to, you know, it's, so you've got all these systems that are competing for whatever the next right thing is. How do you help people navigate that? For me, I think for what Dr. Minert said earlier, actually about TV shows and movies, in connection with this would be praying and growing in self-knowledge just as much as possible, always in connection with this because um, Dr. Boyer would be happy, but John Paul Sartre said um, many people live in bad faith. And that's kind of one reason that he wrote no exit, which is what the good place is based off of. Um, And the main character in no exit Garson kept kind of denying that he was a coward and like being like, no, I'm not a coward. And then kind of always asking if he was a coward to everyone else. And so I think that something that maybe the good place is also trying to hint at is that everyone in the world, not everyone. Well, I don't know, maybe everyone, I don't know if that's what they're trying to show, but that many people are living in bad faith right now, which I guess a simple way to explain bad faith, from what I've learned is that you're denying your transcendence. You're lying to yourself about certain parts of yourself. Like for example, the main character is like, I'm not a coward. I wasn't a coward on earth here. Let me show the other characters. I wasn't a coward. Can you affirm that I wasn't a coward? Mm -hmm. Um, Just certain things like that. And I think when you come to terms with certain vices that you have and you come to terms with certain parts of yourself, and can say, yes, I struggle with this. Yes, this is a sin that I struggle with. Or yes, this is a vice that I have. And then, work, you know, ask God and work on it. Um, and then I think that can help you 
in the ethical world, in the spiritual life, in human formation. Oh, yeah. I think that sense of, you're right, that that sense of bad faith is there. And there's there's also some kind of deep overlap there with Christianity in the claim that sin causes us to have false notions of ourself, that we're constantly deluded because of our sinfulness. And I think there's definitely overlap. Yeah, I can see that. I see the good place as offering sort of like a playing field as to like how to start making those those next right decisions. So like what do I mean by that? Not necessarily in ethical systems, but maybe you could reduce all of these things to specific ethical systems, but I think through its stories, through its situations, through like these like these situations that they put the characters in, right? So like Cheedy does the whole thing with I think it was Eleanor Tahani with like the train coming in and she's like, what choice do you make? Like things like that. Um, you know, going to like the neutral place and kind of having to figure out that whole thing with Mindy. Was that her name? Mm-hmm. Mindy? Yeah. Mindy, Mindy St. Clair. St. Clair. Yeah. Mindy St. Clair. Um, I think the show does a really good job of putting all of these characters in certain situations to where they have to make a decision. What do you do? And I think the the results or the consequences from that show an obvious, ah, yes, that was a good decision. That was a bad decision. Um, and so I think the show as a whole, and I think what was said before is right. I don't think it's necessarily advocating for, ah, like Kantianism is the right way or utilitarianism is the right way. But I think it, it gives off some general, just like, general understanding like yes community is important your actions are not separated from a community right it's not like you can just go on by yourself make what you think are good decisions whenever it negatively impacts other people right so i think that's one of them i think it looks at um decisions that are intertwined with like commitments and uh friendships and like sacrifice so, I don't know. I'm looking at it from a much more broader perspective. You know, I think it could give generally, like, themes of sacrifice, commitment, friendship, relationship. All those things are very important. And I think portraying those and the way the show did kind of gives viewers sort of like a playing field to go off and go, oh, yeah, I want that. I want that kind of relationship. I want that kind of friendship, that relationship that Eleanor and Sheedy ultimately had how did it get there well a lot of sacrifice and a lot of trust and a lot of things like that like um i want the piece that cheaty did whenever he was finally able to like snap out and like make a decision there's something very captivating like no like we're gonna do this and that it's like oh wow i want to be that you know i like tahani finally overcoming her parents and her sister and being able to not be so shackled to like that prevent like that jealousy and that vanity i think the show gives a lot like captive is able to captivate their viewers and be like these are things that i would also want if i watching the show i want the piece that chidi had i want the relationship of elnor and chidi i want this that that kind of levels the playing field to go yeah like this is where we're going towards this is like our these are the things that we want to get it doesn't really give like an avenue of how to get there, but it kind of, I don't know. I think it does a really good job of giving like the end goals versus like the paths to get there. If that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's fair. I'm still stuck on um, what this means for our culture and like, how do you uh, there thereby actually have genuine ethical conversations or help people to, sort of see the value of um not even see the value but how do you convince people right i mean the, it's only the virtue ethics tradition that really has goodness being both interior to things and objectively out there right it's it's only the virtue ethics tradition that really um i don't know that takes sort of the best out of the other you might say ethical systems 
and I guess I I would probably try to I'm making a strong claim even in just saying that, right? But <laughs> but I guess I would try to help someone see in what would almost be a universally agreeable good act, you know, something that everybody would want and then sort of try to work your way back into what are the implications of that, you know? And so what are you actually saying about goodness and evil if you're going to hold this thing to actually be good, you know? And then, and only in sort of retracing that step, try to show someone therefore like, well, ultimately, if you think this is true, then this is the system, you know, that you're buying into. Um, but I, I just think it's something that you would have to start with, with a, a place that someone already agreed or where they could see the good and, you know, eventually kind of build it piece by piece. But I, I think it's easier said than done. And, and that's what I mean about like what this show is ultimately showing us about our culture, right? I think ethics and ethical dialogue is pretty fragmented. And, um, I think there's a way to ease to like superficially just be like, Oh yeah, oh, that's so sweet. Like, um, yeah, there's self-sacrifice there, but ultimately, yeah, the, the whole Buddhist understanding of going back to the ocean. Yeah. That sounds cool. That sounds peaceful. That must be it. You know, like, and it's like, bleh, 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 okay. You know, how, how do you make sense of that? And can you help people push deeper? I think Bishop Robert Barron would agree with you about sort of like beginning with the beautiful, that's something he says a lot in all of his sort of apologetic work and that people will disagree on goodness, what is good, what is bad. People will disagree on what is true, but potentially the easiest avenue to rope somebody in is go look at this beautiful thing. Look at how beautiful, captivate, to kind of rope them in and then go from there to work on like, okay, so like, what is this? How do I get there? Well, then you start working in the like, what is good? What is evil? What is true? Things like that. Well, yeah. But then you're also going to have the person who says the wave is beautiful. And I want to go, I want to believe in the Buddhist understanding of the wave. Um, and I mean, I've, there is an answer. There is an answer to, you know, why we're not Buddhists and why we're Catholic. Um, and I think that, I don't know, you almost, but it, it is a whole structure that you do have to buy into first, um, or that you have to accept, right? So if they accept the structure, then it's like, okay, well, then we can work through that. But, um, yeah, I mean, working through the wave problem of why that doesn't work. Yeah, it's all good. I, I don't know I if know, we're going to solve not, it, right? I just wanted okay. to, I it's sort of okay. wanted to bring up the problem, right? Yeah. In diagnosing the show and what it says about our culture. Incomprehensible, sure. we don't have to solve like it. the Trinity. Good, thanks. Yeah. I'm going to tap out. Joyce <laughs> in the mystery. <laughs> Cool. Well, let's end with a game. And this game is called Guess the Plot. And the two contestants for our game are Dr. Minard and Trey. You are the two contestants. Oh, random. <laughs> and Elise Great. has come and Elise has come up with a few movies and uh we'll do just one at a time. So, are these Dr. Minard gets movies? Yeah, these are real movies. Uh. And we're going to keep score, okay? Okay. We're keeping score. I'm so, definitely going to win. All right. Elise, you want to give us the, the first one for Dr. Minert? What's eating Gilbert Grape? What am I supposed to do? You got to tell us what the plot of the movie is. Oh, I don't, I don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> what would you think the plot? You've got to give your yeah, best give shot. No, I just guess. Shot. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's is, eating like, it's Gilbert? Good that you, it's good you tell us if you don't know, or if you do know. That's good. Yeah. I should tell you. <laughs> yes, please okay. be honest. Just give it your best shot. What's the plot of What's Eating Gilbert Grape? Uh, two neighbors, guy across the street, super torn up about stuff, constantly <laughs> growing grapes. Um, guy has a chip on his shoulder. Kids yell at him through the window, comes to a greater <laughs> relationship with these kids and finds out that um, 
all this kind of messed up stuff and he's healed through the relationship. That's it. He's totally watched excellent this movie. That's totally excellent. How, how did you know? I knew. That's it. Yep. Let's say uh, I think uh, you're incorrect. Bummer. <laughs> Trey, what what movie does Trey get, please? Um. All right. Trey, The Big Lebowski. Hey, I want that one. <laughs> no, nope, I actually you know, know what that is. Nope, the that's good. Big okay, Lebowski. Lebowski sounds slightly Russian or German, so I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with a family, maybe Russian. I'm gonna go with the Russian family. Russian moves to America, um, settled into like a quaint little New York apartment. Um, comes to find out that they are harshly in terms of money, gets involved in like a mafia type of thing, comes up with like a plot to rob a bank. At the end of the movie, they come to discover how the beauty of a simple and pious life. Wow. Sounds like a real tearjerker right there. Man. That's actually the exact opposite of the Big Lebowski. <laughs> I am one hundred percent. What is the Big Lebowski about, Doctor Miner? Uh, it's about bowling and, and smoking and drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Mafias. I'm sure they drink uh, and they smoke. <laughs> I like where you're running with that, though, Trey. That was nice. All yeah, right, Alicia. Alicia, you got another one to throw to Doctor Miner? Yes. The Perks of Being a Wallflower. <laughs> oh, this sounds like a great movie. Uh, so this is a secret movie, uh, or it's not a secret movie. It's a movie showing the secret lives of introverts and why their character traits are actually far superior to those who constantly speak and hang out with others. <laughs> My little introvert heart smiled when you said that. <laughs> That's great. I don't know if that's what it's about, but it should be. What is it really about? Oh, it's so angsty. <laughs> I'll read. I had a feeling it was angsty. Catherine, do you do you know? Uh, I haven't seen it in a while. You you probably have a better description. I have a very Wikipedia-like description. Oh, socially awkward teen Charlie is a wallflower, always watching life from the sidelines. Until two charismatic students become his mentors, free-spirited Sam and her stepbrother Patrick help Charlie discover the joys of friendship, first love, music, and more. While a teacher oh sparks Charlie's no, that's dream all wrong. of becoming that's all backwards. Right. so boring. That's all backwards. <laughs> However, wait, it should this be is like the last famous, part. popular jocks. Okay, fine. However, as his twist. new friends prepare to leave for college. Charlie's inner sadness threatens to shatter his newfound confidence. Oh, man. Yeah, it's totally opposite. Uh, Beautiful, popular jock learns that life is, his life is meaningless by hanging out with people who don't talk to others and just stare. That's the real, that's the real plot of the movie. But it's got Emma Watson in it. Oh, Hermione. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, I was going to say, who's Emma Watson? Okay, okay, I have a good one for Trey. Okay, Trey. Oh, right. uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. Come on. Come this on. Is hilarious, yeah. This is Doubtfire. Yes. Yes. <laughs> sounds give like it, a meme. <laughs> get, give it your best, Trey. Give it your best. <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire. Sorry, I love this movie. <laughs> With the name, it's it brings me to like a similar vibe as like Mary Poppins. So like, not bad, not bad. So like, yeah. okay. Mrs. Doubtfire, something to the extent of like a nanny who who tries to teach the children, it like educates them. Um, Can you go a little bit further? (laughs) 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 But it was like super, super, um, oh, what's the word? It's like super 
There's only one word you might be looking for. Hesitant as to as to the education that she's giving them or to like what the children are saying in response. I don't know, something to the effect of like a nanny who teaches them children, nanny don't really agree too well, and spits like fire responses to them. <laughs> Oh, I thought you actually meant to fire. I thought they became <laughs> That's a- one heck of a twist. <laughs> that's not yeah. that's not bad, Trey. That's Wait, not bad. Are you serious? I've I've, yeah. I've got here's the actual plot. Troubled that he has little access to his children, divorced Daniel Hillard, played by Robin Williams, Ooh. hatches an elaborate plan with help from his creative brother Frank. He dresses as an older British woman and convinces his ex-wife Miranda to hire him as a nanny. Mrs. Doubtfire wins over the children and helps Daniel become a better parent. <laughs> so he dresses hey, as not a bad. grandma. That's but she wow. doesn't know it's actually his her husband dressing as the grandma. Wow. It's hilarious. Okay, last last round, Elise. All right, all right. Whew. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Minor, cheaper by the dozen. Ooh, I know that. Uh, no, I don't. It's something about kids. Oh, uh, okay, you know it. We got we to get another one. Okay. That's point nine. <laughs> That's a point. <laughs> hey, it's about kids. Wait, do I get a point uh, what about, for the last one? No, you were totally um, guessing. Aquila, Aquila and the Bee. Aquila and the Bee. I think oh, I might have seen this one. in my youth. Um, I don't know. No, think I, haven't. So. I haven't. Yeah, yeah no, it was more recent. Yeah, produced maybe seven, six, six years ago. Aquila and the Bee. I've never even heard of this. You haven't? No. I think. I think it was a 2009. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you later. I, I can tell you okay. later. But. What's coming to mind is some kind of jungle book knockoff. All right. So you've right. got this small child living in the jungle who befriends, instead of a panther and a bear, a bee <laughs> and joins the bee colony, becomes a worker, dies after three or four weeks because that's what they do. But it's a <laughs> sacrifice for the community. And so it's good. That sounds like the movie Be narrated by Jerry Seinfeld. You mean the B movie? <laughs> the B movie. Oh, that's a B movie. Okay, so what's Achille and the B about? Dr. Pedraza, I'm surprised because mm. I could see Joseph really liking this. Okay. Aquila, an 11 year old girl living in South Los Angeles, discovers she has a talent for spelling, which she hopes will take her to the National Spelling Bee. Uh, spelling oh, I have bee. seen this. I think I have seen this. Mm. Yeah. Despite her mother's objections, Aquila doesn't give up on her goal. She finds help in the form of a mysterious teacher. And along with overwhelming support from her community, Aquila might just have what it takes to make her dream come true. Hey. Uh, 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 nice. Okay. Right. Isn't it Kiki Palmer? Sure. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, what a, what a legend. <laughs> um, All right. Last one, Trey. Trey. All right. I'm ready. If, if you know this one, you have to tell us. All right. Uh, Free Willy. I've seen it. Okay. Um, Point. Tied. Tied. Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> Go obscure here. Come on. Do you know musicals, Trey? No. Oh, okay. Besides Les Mis. Yeah, I was going to say, wait a second. I like Les Mis. Armageddon. Okay. <laughs> Uh, hairspray. Oh, hairspray. Okay. <sighs> Never. Trey, heard that. I explained the plot of this to you a couple days ago. So if you don't remember, <laughs> no, you didn't. There's no yes, way. I did. There's, you're like, what's oh, hairspray man. about? <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> oh, this is fun. Hairspray. There's like no way you can get it from the title. Hairspray. Okay, Catherine, I'm gonna go. I'm, I'm gonna, let I'm you gonna take go. This one to explain. There's yeah. a very disgruntled worker at um, maybe at a hairspray factory. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. she's at a hair salon. She's a very disgruntled worker. Um, comes to find out the owner of the factory, barbershop, whatever, is involved in a great plot to overthrow the entire cosmetic industry. 
So uh, this disgruntled worker, uh, let's call her Janet. Um, she's very, very knowledgeable about the company. And so she enlists a lot of help in thwarting said plot from her boss. But actually, it turns out um, the person she enlists is working with the boss to overthrow the cosmetic industry, therefore thwarting her attempt to thwart her boss, which lands her in prison and leaves her with the meaning that life is meaningless. Is Sandra Bullock in this? No, (laughs) but Zac Efron is. She would never be in a movie like that. (laughs) Wow. I can't believe that Catherine explained the plot to you a few days ago. Kristen Bell might be in a movie like that. All right, Catherine, what's the real plot? I don't think that happened. So this takes place in the 50s. And I think her name's Tracy. Tracy. Turnblad. Yeah, Turnblad. (laughs) She has her favorite show, which is a dancing show. And she wants to be on this show it's also about like racial segregation and that kind of stuff it deals with a lot right she's also an an overweight lady who you know is insecure but then they actually let her on the dancing show and she dances and she eventually um helps desegregate the the dancing show so it's good she does end up in jail at one point so you did get the jail thing right Um, but yeah, I think the movie came out in like, I want to say 2011 and Zac Efron was not it. I truly don't recall you ever telling me about that plot. I'm sorry. (sighs) Gosh, well, too bad. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope we've given you some ideas for your next Netflix and Amazon Prime watching. If anything, check out The Good Place. And uh, thanks for joining us again for this episode of The Dunce's Corner. You can catch us at duncepod.com. And there you'll find all of our social media connections as well. And we'll catch you next time. Peace. Thanks, everybody. Did it. Yay. All right. <laughs> All right. It's going to be a monster to edit. Yeah. I'm not. This is going to be a lot of, a lot of yeah. cutting. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry if I cut like crazy, but I have to.